Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, my special guest is Dr. Ed Yardeni. He has a storied career on Wall Street, uh, Prudential Base, E.F. Hutton, and probably uh, best known uh, for his work at Deutsche Bank. He now runs Yardeni Research and has a fairly substantial institutional client base. This was really a very wide-ranging conversation about traditional economics and how uh, we use that as a basis of analysis of equity and bond investing. He is not the typical economist in that he really got started on the bond side and then moved to equities. And I I find a lot of his perspective to be uh, atypical and very, very interesting. Uh, And obviously his clients uh, agree with that because he... uh, advises a lot of very substantial mutual and hedge funds, and they really care a lot about what his perspectives on the world economy is. He is both simultaneously enthusiastic and constructive about the future growth in the United States, but raises a lot of concerns about things globally, including debt in China, demography in Japan, and some of the other Uh, long-term issues from globalization and automation and what it might mean for employment going forward. But but he's not a perma-bull or perma-bear. He's he's flipped back and forth over times. And I found him to be surprisingly constructive about the U.S. economy. Uh, He thinks we're late in the cycle, but no way near over. And, And that was really interesting, his explanation for that. So without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Ed Yardeni. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Ed Yardeni. He is founder and chief investment strategist at Yardeni Research. He has a storied career He has been on Wall Street uh, for 25 years. Early in his career, he was chief economist at E.F. Hutton. We all remember and and love those commercials, as well as working at Prudential Securities and C.J. Lawrence. Uh, He began his career at the Federal Reserve in both Washington and New York, served in the U.S. Treasury. Eventually, he became chief strategist at Deutsche Bank Securities. He started out with a BA uh, in in economics at Cornell, as well as a PhD uh, in economics at Yale, where he studied under Nobel laureate James Tobin. Uh, Dr. Ed Yardeni, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. So you have a really interesting career, uh, what I call the golden era of Wall Street. It was Uh, a golden era for sure. uh, What was it like back then? I think it uh, well. It was golden, I think, because it was sort of the tail end of the partnerships, uh, mm-hmm. when uh, Wall Street firms uh, were responsible for their actions. And um, people don't realize a partnership is joint and several liability. That's right. So not only are you responsible for your own behavior, you're responsible for what everybody else in yeah. the firm is doing. Let me tell you, that focused people's attention it on did. risk. Didn't it did. It? 
But uh, it turned into the Wild West pretty quickly early in my career because a lot of the firms went uh, public. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started to see um, all kinds of trading desks open up. Um, For my career, it was great because uh, I had a tremendous demand for what I did for a living uh, from the commodity people, from the equity people, the bond people. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, although uh, most of my career has been focused on uh, equity strategy, the reality is the early part of my career at uh, EF Hutton was made on the bond market. Uh, I had some great calls back then. And um, so I, I had just, uh, for me, as an economist and then as a strategist, um, the fact that uh, Wall Street went into more and more businesses and had more and more trading desks and things got uh, more volatile and more dependent on information, that was great for me. It's amazing how many great equity analysts began on the fixed income side it's really very overlooked. I, I have a, a list in my head of yeah. people, including a number of guests on this show, yeah. who started out in fixed income, and with that background, gave them a lot of insight into equity. I, I why think, why I, is that? I think it gives you a tremendous uh, ad- advantage, and I, I wish I'd really spent more time on the fixed income side, because I, I spent it more on kind of the macro side, not on the credit side. And uh, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, being a credit analyst on the bond side or having some insights there would have been very helpful in 2007. As a matter of fact, um, uh, one of my uh, accounts in San Francisco, a strategist there, uh, came uh, to New York in 2008 and called me up and said, Ed, I don't have any time to see you. I'm saying just fixed income strategist. And it was brilliant because uh, he really early on got really spooked by what he what he heard. So I, I think you know the, the reason that it's important to know what's going on on the credit side is that's where the trouble often starts. To, uh, too to much say de- the least. too much debt. Sure, too much debt, too much leverage. People exactly. way too far out over their skis. Yeah. On the equity side, things can look fine, but really a lot of trouble uh, Absol- ends up there. Absolutely. You know. I look at your the early part of your career. You very easily could have been an academic. You, yeah. You studied with Tobin. Yes, I could. Have. Uh, yep. Legendary. You mm-hmm. end up at at the Fed in the research department. Mm-hmm. That's practically an academic position. Right. I know that's morphed over the years. I only stayed at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York for for a year. I spent a short period of time at the Federal Reserve Bank in Washington D.C. Uh, spending some time writing my dis- dissertation. Uh, honestly, my role model was actually Henry Kaufman. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, back uh, when I was an undergraduate at Cornell, I actually uh, kind of cold called uh, Kaufman and I, I asked him if he'd come and speak and, uh, to uh, a group of us, and uh, he wasn't able to do it. But uh, I was an early admirer of, of his. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my wife's uncle, Charles, uh, was uh, at um, Solomon Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and With uh, Kaufman? With Kaufman, is, and, and in some ways, I mean, she the, the urban legend she passes on to me is that uh, her uncle kind of created uh, Kaufman's job, so uh, th- there's always sort of a kinship there. But, I mean, I didn't know anything about that at the time, but, um, I, 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 you know, the, the, the role of a chief economist on Wall Street appealed to me, and uh, Kaufman really was the, the fellow who um, tr- uh, blazed uh, the, the trail. So so you're, you're at... The Ivy studying economics. Yeah. You you find your way to the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. How do you make that transition to actual finance to Wall Street? Oh, it was easy from academics. So so yeah. what what was, <laughs> was what what led you there? It was easy. I was I was bored at the Fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was writing these memos that were just put in the file. Right. As it turned out, um, 
they, they put me on a very important subject, which was Regulation Q and the savings and loan industry. Oh, sure. So, I mean, that came in real handy for the SNL crisis in the late 80s and the early 90s. Uh, so I, I, I sort of was pre- prepared for all that. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the transition to Wall Street was easy. A headhunter called me up and said, E.F. Hutton's looking for somebody to uh, uh, be a, an economist on the fixed income Perfect. Flow of fun side, and it's like, whoa, this is exactly the job I'm looking for because that was what Henry Kaufman did. Henry Kaufman focused on uh, the flow of funds and uh, mm-hmm. the, the outlook for interest rates. And so, I mean, it, I got the job one, two, three. It was great. I'm old enough to remember when the flow of funds was something that people really oh, yeah. tracked every week. It was a big deal, and now it seems it to have huge sort and, of uh, faded. Yeah, if you recall, Kaufman actually uh, pred- you know, spent an enormous amount of time, had a big staff uh, predicting where the flow of funds was going to go. And uh, I always thought it was a little bit uh, over the top. You know, I mean, can you really forecast, you know, tough forecasting a couple of numbers, let, let alone hundreds of uh, flow of funds numbers. But he went through the exercise, and I guess uh, it worked for him until it didn't. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dr. Ed Yardeni. He is the founder and chief strategist at Yardeni Research, uh, which can be found at the website. Well, uh, blog.yardeni.com is open to the public. uh, Blog.yardeni.com. Right. Let's talk a little bit about economics and economists and their discontents. My my favorite subject. Uh, One of my favorite. So let's start with just economic indicators. What, Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite things to look at in helping you assess both the state of the economy and the overall well, stock market. you know, if you limited me to one, mm-hmm. uh, I really like the CRB Raw Industrial Spot Price Index. So, and the st- spot price index for all commodities you know, or uh, industrial? Thir- or 13 industrial commodities. It mm-hmm. does not include any petroleum products. It doesn't include any wood products, which is why I like it, because I think petroleum and wood have their own supply and demand. The main reason I like it is because it's work. It's been available for years. It's available daily, mm-hmm. and it's a very sensitive indicator of the global economy. Uh, and sometimes I get a little funky with it. I, I've kind of, uh, for many years, been calculating the uh, boom-bust barometer, right? And that's simply that uh, commodity index uh, divided by initial unemployment claims. So it's a, it's a weekly number. So you're taking the commodity index, which is a global indicator, right? But, but looking at U.S. unemployment, uh, claims. but looking at U.S. unemployment. I mean, let's face it: the U.S. economy, in the past and continues to be a, a major driver of the global economy. So it's it's still working. I mean, it's conceivable that one of these days the U.S. won't be as important as it still is, and that indicator won't be as helpful when we look at initial claims. But uh, the the commodity price index has been very very helpful. But you know, like all indicators, uh, you know, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Um, right. Uh, sometimes when they don't seem to work, uh, they're they're helpful in in forcing you to think about what's what's different this time around. And uh, you know, with a recent drop in in the industrial commodity prices until earlier this year, um, I concluded that it wasn't that the global economy was falling into recession, but there was just way too much supply of these commodities. Uh, so um, we've seen something similar with the Baltic Dry Index because people yeah. used to track that yeah, obsessively, and then there were just a ton of new ships that came yeah, out, that's and right. suddenly that's right. it, it, it didn't indicate anything that's other gr- than excess that's supply. That's a great point. So you got to know when these indicators are useful and when they're not. The CRB is still useful. The Baltic isn't useful because there's just way too many ships out there. Uh, so that's uh, but but you know I mean other than that I mean there's 
there's really nothing that I don't look at. I mean, I'll look at West Coast container mm-hmm. uh, traffic. I'll look at uh, rail, you know, the, so they, I mean, I'm not the only one looking at this stuff. I mean, rail car loadings is something we look at very, very closely. Um, but um, we try, try not, not to ignore anything. We mentioned the Baltic Dry Index. What sort of economic indicators do you think are a little overhyped or that perhaps investors should not put as much weight on as they actually do? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think we give a tremendous amount of weight every month to the employment numbers. No doubt. Um, and they always get revised. And repeatedly. Repeatedly. And uh, not only that, but uh, it's just uh, you can really sink in that swamp that they hand out every every month. It's just so much data and, and information. We we try to cut to the chase. Uh, maybe it's because I'm you know simple minded. I need to keep keep my mind focused on, on one or two variables. What we do is we calculate something called the earned income proxy. Mm-hmm. And what that is simply is you take okay, how many people are working? How many hours are they working? And what's their wage? Uh, it turns out that's exactly what the the, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does to uh, get uh, an initial estimate for wages, and wages is what drives the consumer to a large extent. Sure. So um, number of people working. Yeah. How many hours they're working right. and what's their hourly wage? That, that's And that correct. gives you total total wages. And then do you know you can use the month over month change and uh, you know like last month the uh, everybody was disappointed by the the payroll number. It was it was not a big number. It was uh, disappointing. Uh, but when you looked at hours and wages, um, uh, the earned income proxy was up like zero point seven percent, which is a big move. a big move on a month over month basis. And it it was a great harbinger of retail sales being better than expected. So let me ask you uh, about an ongoing issue that people keep having yeah. problems with, which is measuring productivity. If, if you believe the data, yeah. we've seen no real productivity gains. I know you run a, a relatively small office, yeah. and you're incredibly productive. Mm-hmm. I run a small office, and I know what we do yeah. with a dozen or so people. Right. Uh, we couldn't have done with less than 50 people 10, 20 I, I years agree. ago. Yeah. So, so why aren't we seeing any gains in the productivity statistics. You know, I, I think it takes a long time for the government statisticians to recognize that they're missing something. Mm-hmm. And it could take 10, 15, 20 years, and then it could take them another five to 10 years to do a special study to try to figure out what they're missing. And then they finally come up with a revised number. Um, you know, in capital spending, remember um, that uh, R&D used to be expensed, and now all of a sudden it's Included it's a as long-term as, investment. Yeah, now it's long-term investment. Um, uh, software. I'm not even quite sure how you measure that, but there's a measure of software. Uh, I don't know. My my company is totally virtual. Everybody works from everywhere. They right. Like. We do the same yeah, thing. We, as we well. send all of our information to the Amazon cloud. I'm not pitching their service, but we send it to the cloud, and uh, everything is done. Remotely, we used to have two servers sitting in a server farm, right? And the productivity of those machines had to be extremely low. We weren't using them very much, but now on the Amazon cloud, I have to believe that the servers that Amazon has, uh, those those servers are being used very intensively. But we're working twenty four by seven, so um, I know maybe you know we're putting out more output, but we're also working long hours because we're there's that. I mean, you're you're accessible on weekends and nights. We use a program called Slack. So mm-hmm. not only is it a secure communication program, but we upload files and we sure. share things. Yeah. And it's just basically made everybody yeah. reachable I, any time of I the think, night or day. I think the productivity numbers are either right or they're wrong. Either you know, uh, the, the, the statisticians have it more or less right or else they're missing a lot of output. 
the truth may be somewhere in between, but look, the reality is a lot of the jobs that have been created have been created in the service sector, mm-hmm. and we're only now starting to see technology entering the service sector. Uh, there's this uh, robot, Pepper, uh, that SoftBank is uh, marketing and selling, and apparently MasterCard is using it in some restaurants in Japan. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, uh, we already have uh, at uh, LaGuardia, you know, it's the so-called th- third world airport. Right. Uh, we have iPads uh, sitting there uh, where you can order what you're going to, what, what you want to eat. That's the menus, that's the restaurant. Yeah. That, by the way, that's in one of the renovated uh, terminals. I right. think that's the Delta terminal. Yeah, absolutely. That was renovated. Yeah. And um, I just read Foxconn laid off 60,000 people, that's replaced right. them with yeah. robots. Barry, look, at the end of the day, why do we really care about productivity? And the answer is because it determines the standard of living. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dr. Ed Yardeni. He is the president and chief investment strategist at Yardeni Research. Uh, a uh, long and storied career. He was chief economist at EF Hutton, chief investment strategist at Deutsche Bank, and one of the first people to begin warning about a computer glitch that was potentially problematic. You you very famously warned about the Y2K bug years, years in advance. Mm-hmm. Your background is that of an economist. How on earth did you ever stumble into that odd little well, programming uh, uh, glitch? And before you answer, country. for you youngins who may not remember this, it turns out that lots of computers were programmed with only two digits mm. for the year. And I guess people forgot that eventually the century will end. So instead of going to 2000 after 1999, the concern was it was just going to roll over to 1901 or 1900, and that would cause all manner of uh, mayhem. So so how did you stumble onto that issue? Yeah, I um, I guess during my wonder years, um, you know, I uh, I went to elementary school in Cleveland, Ohio, and. Then we moved to uh, San Jose, California, which even back then was uh, Silicon Valley. My father worked for IBM. Uh, I was in a science club and uh, learned Fortran programming. So I've, really? al- I've always had a interest in that. And when I went to uh, Cornell, um, I started out in engineering and just couldn't take differential equations. It was way too hard and physics was way too hard. It's funny you say that. I started out applied mathematics That's, and physics yeah. at, at Stony Brook. By the time I hit my senior year, it's like, gee, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's too I'm much. not keeping up. It's too much. So, uh, yeah, so I, be, I became an economist. But when I switched over to arts and sciences, I still stayed with physics for one, one last gasp and took a course in semiconductors and a course in uh, that's material uh, science yeah, really and, and assembly programming and i really like programming mm-hmm. uh but you know i never really mastered it i just kind of enjoyed it uh and actually in 1995 i think i was probably the first economist on wall street with his own website mm-hmm. uh, i don't know how i got away with it my firm let me actually put Dr. Ed Yardeni's uh, Economics Network on it. I remember you know? that, and I would imagine they had no idea what a website was. They had no idea the what a website was. The compliance department certainly didn't No, know. no, no lawyers around, and uh, so I had my own website. It was fantastic. Um, and um, in the early 19, uh, the 1990s for me, the 80s for me was when I was forecasting disinflation and I was very bullish on bonds. The 1990s, my focus uh, with the benefit of hindsight, turned out to be largely in technology. In 1993, I, I started to argue that we were in the early stages of a high-tech revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1995, I, it was a great call. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think back then, 
The S&P 500 tech companies were about 11% of the market cap, and I predicted they'd get to 7, 17%. I think they got to 25% of mar- market cap. Um, and um, uh, along the way, as that, uh, as, as that call worked out, uh, my contrary instincts came out a little bit. And, sure. Uh, uh, you know, there were some of these uh, Y2K companies that were fixing the problem. And so I, I started to look into it. I mean, basically, the forecast was working out real well. And sometimes when something's working out, don't don't mess with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, when I saw that Alan Greenspan was starting to be a cheerleader for the tech revolution and was saying this could be a, a once-in-a-century uh, development. and uh, What was le- that, like circa 1995 or 96? Yeah, but by 1999, he was actually – he gave a speech called the te- – the, uh, I think it was called the technology lottery, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was saying that, uh, yeah, tech stocks seem overvalued. And it's kind of questionable why a Fed chairman should, should be talking about Valuation. I think they were afraid that the bubble was going to burst, and they he were looking to let a little air he, out. He was, and uh, especially after the 1996 speech, famous irrational yes. exuberance yeah. speech. Yeah. Four years early, yeah. I think he thought there was a credibility. He issue wanted to show that he was on top of it, mm-hmm. uh, but as you know, his uh, he made it very clear that he wasn't in the bubble bursting business; that he'd clean up the mess a- a- after it happened. And so I started to worry a little bit more about the the, the mess and. Uh, it seemed to me that uh, Y2K could create a problem, uh, and so I did uh, start to uh, uh, write about that uh, issue, and uh, suddenly I started to attract all these Y2K people, not uh, not the fringe people, but uh, investment technology chiefs were calling me up and said, you know, it's good to have somebody outside of the industry kind of raising the flag. And as a matter of fact, it turned out that the S&P 500 companies spent $50 billion on the problem. Uh, and as a result, we didn't have a problem. Uh, so that that was uh, that was a good thing. I think with the benefit of hindsight, um, I, I, I came to, to, to the right conclusion for, for the wrong reason. Y2K didn't cause a recession. Everything was, was fixed. Y2K led to, contributed to the technology bubble, which then burst in 2000. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research, uh, formerly uh, chief strategist at Deutsche Bank. You know, before we get into the details of the global economy, Mm -hmm. I I would be remiss if I didn't Mm -hmm. ask. So you've worked at U.S.-based banks like Prudential and E.F. Hutton. Right, C.J. Lawrence. All right. right. Deutsche Bank, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. is this giant German bank with branch offices here in the U.S. What is the cultural differences like between a a, a U.S. bank headquartered in New York and uh, an outpost of a European bank that might have a different uh, philosophy or worldview. Well, you know, C.J. C. Lawrence, when I joined it in the early 90s, was owned by Morgan Grenfell, mm-hmm. uh, but very arm's length. And then Morgan Grenfell was bought by Deutsche Bank, also very arm's length. And it took a, a while before the regulators in the U.S. allowed the foreign banks to have any influence on, on C.J. Lawrence. So wait, you started at a company that was bought by M- Morgan Grenfell, and then you ca- and eventually you came back to. Was I, that later in your career? No, 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 no. It was just the same. It's just the same firm. No, same CJ, desk, different yes, card. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, card. look, the bottom line is, I was there for basically, you know, the 1990s, and I really didn't see much impact at all because mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
Americans still basically ran the shop, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly on the on the equity side, it was only in the kind of late period there that uh, it became a little bit more international. But I, I didn't really see much of it. Because when when we've spoken to people from UBS yeah. or Credit Suisse, maybe it's just the Swiss, but it seems that there's a somewhat. Although you could say the same is true with Barclays and mm-hmm. and the British. There's a little bit of a different philosophical mindset maybe that's amongst the sea level execs and by the time uh-huh. it I, filters down to the US staff it's I, I, it's I don't watered know down. I, I don't know if it's US versus foreign so much as it is big versus small uh, mm-hmm. EF Hutton was relatively small Prudential Beige was relatively small believe it or not back then um, CJA was small but uh, you know once you start talking about Deutsche that's that's a big big bank Huge. I think I think big organizations there's a lot of politics, and uh, they seem to change their strategy on a regular basis. Right, every every quarter yeah. or so. So so let's talk a little bit about the global economy sure. and the U.S. economy. You mentioned earlier the U.S. seems to be the locomotive that's driving a yes, lot of— doing well. It, so how do you compare how the U.S. is doing versus Japan, Europe, and, and emerging markets? Well, the U.S. is doing great. In some ways, it's, it's reminiscent of the uh, 1990s. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember back then, uh, there was the high-tech revolution, and uh, it was very U.S.-centric. If you wanted to invest in in technology, you pretty much had to be in the, in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was uh, on Wall Street, I recall Dell boxes. Everywhere. And, and everywhere, you had to right. be careful not to trip over them. I remember that when I first started the you know, in, in in the early '90s, uh, it was a rare person who got a laptop, and then suddenly everybody's getting PCs and laptops and and everything. So, uh, you know, the the, the whole uh, the whole environment uh, on technology changed pretty dramatically. But again, uh, the U.S. was where you wanted to be. Uh, we had an emerging market crisis in 1997 in Asia, mm-hmm. uh, the Russian debt crisis in 1998. Uh, the Europeans uh, were suffering from what they called eurosclerosis, right. and they, they remember, and they were trying to they're still. <laughs> uh, yes, well, they're back to it, but uh, they were just starting to put together the euro. So the the world feels to me kind of like the second half of the 1990s, where the U.S. was doing well and everybody else was kind of fumbling uh, along. What's different this time maybe is the U.S. is actually more diversified, and we're doing well in technology, we're doing well in finance, we're doing well in healthcare, just across the board. We're doing extremely well, and um, you know I think we did respond to the 2008 crisis uh, by restructuring a lot of the excesses, and uh, mm-hmm. know, lawyers are you know running rampant on on Wall Street, and banks have become regulated utilities, and look, we just had this energy debacle, and uh, it hasn't taken us down in the financial right. system, which I think is proof positive that we've learned something from. From that experience. And the usual suspects came out and said, here comes 2008 again. All these bad yep. loans to the energy complex right. are going to bring the economy to a halt. You know, run <laughs> for the hills. None of that I, seemed to I, come I, to pass. I, I was called into one of my accounts uh, at the beginning of the year, a mutual fund in New York. And uh, there are 30 people in the room. Usually I get 15 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And, and and there was a lot of concerns about those issues. You know, how could a 75% drop in the price of oil not lead to a debacle? How how could we not see the Chinese devaluing the currency? So, I mean, look, a lot of those issues are still out there. Um, but um, this bull market's been really driven by uh, uh, central banks providing ultra-easy monetary policies mm-hmm. and corporate finance managers, particularly in the U.S., buying back uh, their shares. And so, so far, we really, we've had a lot of panic attacks and followed by relief rallies in the stock market. But back to the global story, um, 
uh, it's hard to detect much of a pulse in uh, in the eurozone um, mm-hmm. in production. Production is actually flat for the past two years, which is it's kind of weird because car sales have actually been pretty good uh-huh. and retail sales have been actually pretty good. So it's not there. You talking in, about in, over there? Over mm-hmm. there. Now is that a function of low cost of credit? It and- must be. It must be that you know consumers are still consuming over there, but uh, you know their exports clearly are suffering because the global economy on balance is 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 growing at a subpar pace. Japan is uh, in a coma, and, right. and China is slowing down dramatically. China is the world's maybe biggest ever bubble of all times. Why do, why do you say bubble? That's interesting. Well, bubbles. You know, we were, we were talking about earlier in in, in our discussion about. Why it's so important to focus on debt uh, in uh, in thinking about financial markets? Um, the, the the number that floors me is when you look at bank loans outstanding in China. Uh-huh. Uh, in dollars, they were five trillion dollars wow. in two thousand and eight. They're fifteen trillion dollars now. They've tripled. So over this same period, we've seen our bank loans go up by about a trillion. Uh, they certainly haven't tripled. Uh, now, how much of that is just driven by, everyone forgets, China is still a centrally controlled sort of communist yeah. regime dabbling in capitalism. Right. How much of this is the central policymakers saying, lend money to businesses or pull back? It's probably 100%. I mean, so, I, mean I, I, I think China is being driven by the government trying to keep this thing from falling apart. But Japan kind of went down the same road, remember? They were- 200%. The debt to GDP ratio. Yeah, something and they like that. Uh, they also had their you know their miti. Remember the the industrial policy committee that sat down and the said Kuritsu, that yeah. that everything you have Mitsubishi Motors and Mitsubishi yeah. Bank yeah. and Mitsubishi Real Estate. Central and- planning doesn't work. It works for a while until it blows up. Works till it doesn't. And it works until it doesn't. So let's talk about China, and I don't mm. want to talk about a, a lucky outcome or a or a worst mm. case scenario outcome. Uh, let, let's say China continues to run into problems. How does that play out going forward? I, I think we we have a uh, we have a good example of where China's going, maybe where Europe's going, and eventually where we're going. Though I I, I don't think we're going to go down that same road. And that's Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, Japan uh, was early on with the uh, too much the, debt, not enough well, growth. They, they started out with a, the bubble, and you know, China's going to be the uh, Japan's going to be the world's largest economy. Right. Uh, I remember Rockefeller Center, yeah. and uh oh, they're coming and buying all our yeah, stuff. And what the not uh, that they could take it back to Japan, yeah. but that was the fear back then. Yeah, and so when that bubble burst, what do they do? They lowered their interest rates to zero. Uh, they were early on with uh, uh, quantitative easing. They were actually late on negative interest rates, but they caught up uh, earlier this year. The demography is terrible. The fertility rates collapsed, and uh, right. no immigration. No immigration. The entire society is just rapidly aging, with yeah. not a lot of now. China, in many ways, just a bigger version of all that. The dem- demography is terrible. The One Child Act. Now they they've gotten rid of that. Yeah, but it's going to take a while to work, and uh, they've a generation. <laughs> well, they've interviewed couples, and the couples say, "Well, thanks, but no thanks. It's too expensive to have a kid." Oh, really? Yeah. So it's not it's not obvious that that's going to turn things around. It's not going to do anything for them anytime soon. You know, the the old concern was, "Will China grow old before it grows rich?" And uh, there's more and more evidence saying that it's grown old faster than it's grown rich. That, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. What, what about the U.S. consumer, long the driver of much of the global economy? Can the U.S. consumer keep consuming? And what about 
the ongoing deleveraging we've been seeing. Well, God bless America and God bless the American consumer. I mean, one uh, one thing that American consumers are very good at is consuming. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they really haven't let us down over, over the years. And uh, I think there's some concerns, you know, that the baby boomers who were yuppies and now they're getting older aren't aren't do kind of doing the kind of spending they used to, and maybe maybe the millennials aren't going to pick pick up the ball um, or the baton as as, as well. Uh, but the data shows that uh, consumers consume their incomes, and uh, you know employment's been growing, wages have been growing. Um, again, there's a, this uh, myth out there that uh, Americans' uh, wages have stagnated for the past 20 years. Uh, that's based on one statistic that's collected by the census. Uh, bureau uh, to measure poverty, and it's measured before taxes, and it's measured before entitlements. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's not a good measure of the purchasing power that consumers actually have. Um, so people who want to find more of your writings, they go to blog.yardenny.com. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Ed Yardenny of Yardenny Research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things economic. Feel free to check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead. Gain insight. Imagine more. Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at coneresnick.com slash breakthrough. Cone Resnick. Accounting. Tax. Advisory. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. I don't know why I do this every time. I just feel feel obligated. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for, for doing this. People have asked me about you, and I said I know you for quite some time. Yep. We actually live in adjacent towns mm -hmm. and have gone out to dinner with our mm -hmm. respective spouses. Um, I have a ton of questions for you, but before I forget, yep. you just referenced the millennials versus the boomers in the last segment. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between the two of them. Right. The boomers clearly passed their peak spending years. Mm -hmm. Other than medicinal marijuana, mm -hmm. I couldn't guess what the average boomer is spending money on. Right. Um, and the millennials seem to be a very different consumer cohort, yep. at least so far. Maybe they'll follow in their parents' footsteps but it seems they're less inclined to buy a mm -hmm. car right. between between rideshare and Uber and everything else. And they're else. living in cities. Right. They, they're renting. living more in the cities, except when they're living at home with their parents, yeah. and usually there's an extra car lying around there. How different from an economic perspective are millennials versus the boomers? Well, the um, you know the the boomers got married earlier in uh, their lives than the millennials. Uh, the average age of marriage for both men and women has extended. Maybe that has something to do with social networking. Uh, you can have plenty of dates, whereas... Uh, Swipe left. Yeah, I mean, uh, when, when I was going to college, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people married their high school and college sweethearts. Uh, and then the next thing you did is maybe you moved to the city, and then six months later you 
Got pregnant and moved to the burbs. Moved to the burbs yeah. and uh, got a couple of cars and then upgraded to a bigger house. And so it was it was a different lifestyle than the millennials are, are used to. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, at some point they may, you know, tire of, uh, you know, uh, dating different people uh, on a regular basis and fi- find their, uh, the, their true soulmate and settle down and decide it's time to have kids. But, uh, you know, the... the Later, you wait to get married. Odds are you're going to have fewer kids. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I think the demography is, I've always believed that demography is very, very important. Everybody thinks it takes too long to have an impact. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think it explains a lot. The and, time is going to go by whether you're looking at the demography or not. Yes, yeah. So why not at least be aware, aware of, of it? Yeah. And, and the United States has a relatively high birth rate compared with other industrialized nations. Yes. How, how big of an advantage is that? It's a huge advantage. Uh, fertility rates have collapsed around the world. Europe is flat. Yeah. Japan is negative. Yeah, it's not, nobody's got, I don't think there's one explanation. I think, uh, uh, you know, w- women have become economically freer in a lot of these countries and uh, don't want to have as many kids. But uh, the same is true in the U.S. How do you explain that? Or is the U.S. that diverse culturally that New York is not Chicago is not. I think I think it's diverse culturally, and uh, there, there's uh, there there's still. Uh, I mean, religion has a lot to do with uh, mm-hmm. with, with you know, people who are religious tend to have more kids. Sure. And so I think uh, and get married earlier yeah, and yeah. stay married. Yeah. Or at least that yeah. was the old theory. I don't yeah. know if the data well, I mean, still holds it, up. It used to be that uh, you'd, you'd have to have a lot of kids to take care of you in your old age. And right. Now take care I of think, the farm. Well, now the the government takes is expected to take care of you. So. What's the point of having kids? So I think that's had an impact on. But um, for one reason or another, there are lots of reasons why fertility rates have stayed uh, at. We're really at replacement. We're not really, you know, slightly net, above. Slightly maybe. above, maybe. But when when most most of Europe is is either below. slightly under or or significantly yeah. under, and then you look in Asia, and at least in Japan and China, I can't speak about Korea or mm-hmm. Vietnam or uh, India appears to be above replacement above, level. Yeah. But but the big developed powers like Japan and, yeah. and China, they're running a negative uh, fertility rate as well. Yeah, and Russia, Russia's got a terrible fertility rate. Oh, really? Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Yeah. So so what does this mean to the future of these countries' economies? Well, I, I think one of the great challenges looking ahead, um, I kind of learned my lesson from Y2K not to get, <laughs> to, get too millennial about these things. Right. Uh, but... Uh, you know, lo- longer term, I mean, demography is destiny. I mean, you know, you know who's mm-hmm. born, you know what the fertility rates are, you know how much longer people are living. How, how do we take care of all these old people? Robots? Um, is that, is, I, and well, I say Japan, that. Well, Japan is kind of there. I, I yeah. say that half jokingly on my summer reading list. I have the book uh, Rise of the Robot. Yeah. And Japan remains a massive export power. Yeah. If, are, are they capable, and they're fairly automated in a yeah. lot of their factories how far can this robotics revolution go can they replace the low birth rate in places like japan and and china at least for manufacturing it still kind of raises the question who's going to pay for all that i mean if you got you know people getting older and older not able to work they need robots, but you know they need to eat. They need medication. They need transportation. Right. Well, Switzerland, uh, you got a guaranteed thirty thousand dollars a year salary coming up. Well, again, these things all work until they don't work. I mean, right. uh, you know, uh, I mean, right now, central banks printing money is working until it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, 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 you know, I don't think anybody's really 
trying to figure out how, how we manage in the future. It's not good for our kids, mm-hmm. um, but maybe they're too young to. Uh, but there are less and less of them, so it, yep. it doesn't matter. I guess doesn't matter as much. You mentioned central banks, QE, and yep. zero interest rate policy. I would be remiss if I did not uh, bring that up to discuss. So what is the impact of what the Fed has done in terms of low rates and quantitative easing? Did they help solve the mm-hmm. the financial crisis by adding all this liquidity? And then what does it mean long term and what, what's the end game? How do they get out of this? Well, they, 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 they solved the crisis that uh, I think in some ways they were complicit in, cre- in creating. Listen, uh, Greenspan took rates after 9-11 yep. down to... It was below 2% yeah. for a couple of years, and it was actually under 1% for a year, which was, mm-hmm. you know, you go back to the 50s and early 60s, yeah. you could see rates dip below 1% for a moment, right. and then it's gone. Not yeah. like here's right. 12 months of 1% or less. And Bernanke was giving a speech on the great moderation and mm-hmm. uh, saying that central banks have conquered the business cycle. You know, a capitalistic system has its ups and downs. I mean, people have to deal with failure if they've speculated too much. And if the central bank says, don't worry about it, we'll give you the Greenspan put, the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, uh, you know, it creates too much speculation, too much excess, and too much debt. And as I mentioned before, there's nobody that's doing that on a bigger scale right now than than the Chinese. There's just an enormous amount of debt relative to what eventually their economy can can carry. So would we have, uh, this is a pet peeve of mine, and I try not to bring up too many of them, but would we have been better off in the 2008-09 crisis letting more banks, if not do a full Lehman face splat on the pavement, but do a full bankruptcy reorg, and maybe Uncle Sam is the debtor in possession financer, clean up these banks, uh, rip the Band-Aid off? I I have to think the Mm -hmm. equity market would not have bottomed at 666. Maybe we would have seen Mm -hmm. something much worse, but would we have been healthier in the long run? Well, I think um, I I don't disagree with the notion that QE1 helped to end the crisis. I don't know that... But QE3 and 4 and I don't think we needed all those other QEs. I think they just... I think the central banks have become just kind of like drug dealers to, huh. to, to to the economy and and, and to the no one wants markets. to go through withdrawal. Of, Nobody of wants to go through withdrawal. And uh, you know, um, I, again, capitalism uh, is got its winners and losers. I, I like to show Shark Tank on TV, and mm-hmm. now they're doing some segments showing what it's like after people get supported. And uh, w- winning is a lot of people lose after they win because they don't know how to manage their inventories and they fail and. Some of them, you know, dust off and start all over again. Mm-hmm. But we, we just don't have that kind of, you know, central banks have kind of softened us up. And uh, I'm not quite sure how we get out of this mess. So right now, uh, all the chatter uh, has been on June or July's interest rate increase yep. in, in 2016. For a while, it looked like every time the Fed looked like they were serious about an increase— the equity markets would throw a hissy fit. Uh, here we are at coming to the end of, of the second quarter of 2016, and it looks like markets are starting to accept that, hey, maybe the Fed is serious, mm-hmm. and maybe the last rate increase was December 2015. Right. Maybe we're going to see one or two rate increases this year. Is that putting us on the path to some form of normalization? I, I hope so. I mean, you know, the, the word normalization is a very... Uh 
healthy word. I mean, we all want normal. Although 1% Fed funds rate isn't what I would consider normal. No, it's not, but... uh, Better than zero. There there are some structural forces out there that have nothing to do with the Fed, like aging demographics, I think, Mm -hmm. is slowing the global economy down. Technology is fundamentally uh, disruptive. Uh, global competition, other, uh, otherwise known as globalization. Mm-hmm. So there are other there are forces at work here that uh, really have structurally changed uh, the outlook for inflation and for growth. And so maybe interest rates are going to stay historically low. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned slowing growth due in part to demography. What do you think of the secular stagnation argument do you buy into that is how responsible I, is demography I, and yeah. or is this something that we eventually will innovate our way out of I, I i buy into secular stagnation as a description of what what we're going through mm-hmm. um and since i buy into it i'm buying into the word secular in other words this could could last a while i don't buy into the larry summers idea that uh we need more government policy to mm-hmm. to get us out of this mess um you know, uh, I mean, the next thing that government may very well do is helicopter money. Uh, it doesn't really mean that they're going to rent helicopters and drop money. It means more infrastructure more, more spending, f- infrastructure spending, more fiscal, di- di- fiscal directly financed by by the uh, by, by the federal government. Uh, the problem is we we sh- we proved earlier on a few years ago that we're not shovel ready. There's too many regulations, and it's, it's not clear that you know even if we did something like that, it would really show show an in our infrastructure, it would be nice if if, if that was the case. Uh, but you live not too far from Chicken Valley Road, right? Which has finally, after years of falling apart, Neglect. been repaved. Yeah, and so the the it took, it took a major hurricane to just to and just a couple of horrible winters, winters to really. You know. So my my again another pet peeve on infrastructure is our local airports are fairly. Terrible. Terrible. They range from mediocre to terrible. Yeah. Although, to be fair, the the renovated terminals in JFK are pretty nice. And I think it's Terminal 4 at LaGuardia, the, the newest Delta terminal, mm-hmm. the one that has all the iPads yeah. to order food. Yeah. That's a pretty, all things considered, mm-hmm. the rest of the airport is a dump. The, and, dump. Yeah. and that's such a short runway. It's no fun coming in yeah. anytime it's windy. But that said... The U.S. really could stand for a massive infrastructure upgrade. Yeah, it it, it could. You travel, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. in Europe. Yeah, You're in yeah, Asia yeah, pretty yeah. regularly. I'm astonished. The last time I was in Brussels, in in Italy, they were apologizing for their conditions of their roads. And I'm like, who do I have to pay off to get roads like this? Yeah, yeah. And, and they no, think their roads are bad. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 can, I, I don't know why we're in such a miserable situation other than Government regulation, and uh, I mean, it, we we do spend money, but it just doesn't seem to show up in uh, in the infrastructure. We we haven't raised. So here's I'm not in favor of cranking up taxes, and I know all the candidates for president have their own tax schemes, but dear lord, the gasoline tax has been frozen since 1993, mm-hmm. and and I just tanked up the other day. It was twenty six dollars. It's the yeah, cheapest, it's cheap high test I've ever mm-hmm. seen fill up a tank yeah i'm happy to see that go up to 25 or 30 cents <laughs> if, if you saw if it, the money goes to if, bridges and roads that's a big if you know i mean we we did have uh 
and during this administration, the beginning of the administration, the ARRA, I forget what sure. it stands for. The American Recovery and yeah. Something Act. It was $800 billion, and a big chunk yeah, of that was supposed to be infrastructure, but it really wasn't. So about a third of it was temporary tax yeah. cuts. If you're going to make a tax cut, economic theory yeah. says it needs to be permanent to really have mm-hmm. a, an impact. Uh, and temporary extension of unemployment. So that was like a $200 billion, yeah. of which we've seen some improvements, but, you know... This is with the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. We could have spent two to four trillion dollars over a decade, and really just just barely, uh, yeah. just really barely started doing that. The good news is both candidates seem to be in favor of infrastructure spending. Sure. Let's see if they come up with an intelligent way um, um, to fund that. But all this fiscal conversation is really a way to get to a backdoor way to get to a different question, sure. which is: Have we reached the end? of what monetary policy can do. I, th- I think we have, um, and I think financial markets uh, have kind of s- signaled that, um, you know, we haven't seen the markets go down because you never know when a central bank will try another shock and awe, but we just don't get sh- sh- shocked and awed the way we used to. No response, You've, you're still seeing it in Japan. So mm-hmm. the way I look at it, well, the that, US is done, yeah. Japan is, sort of halfway through and and yeah. Europe is just getting started. Well the the, the problem is um, it's based on demand side management, right? If you can demand uh, side management. Yeah, I mean, Explain it, what you mean by that. Well, I mean, it's, you know, easy easy money and you're going to stimulate demand. Uh, you know, very Are we? very Keynesian. I I think the problem is that uh, we're overloaded with debt. Right. Uh, so I think that's where the central bankers are are just aren't in tune with reality. They've been doing this for so long that there's just way too much debt relative to income. And so easy money, empirically, we can see it's just not being very very stimulative anymore. Um, so here's here's a friend's argument who is on the bond side, on the credit side, says the Fed has kind of painted themselves into a corner, a corner. because there's so much debt. Mm-hmm. If they actually were to take rates up to 3.5%, yeah. 4%, be a nightmare. now think of what you're doing with all this massive amount of debt yeah. you've just put out there. Mm-hmm. What is that going to mean for the economy if everybody is buried under their debt servicing? Yeah, and in some ways we were lucky that some structural secular forces have kept inflation down. Imagine if all this liquidity really did bring back CPI inflation. Sure. uh, Then the central banks for credibility would would have to raise interest rates, uh, which would be disastrous. So that's that's another fascinating (laughs) question. Why has inflation been so low for so long, and and remember, you go back to I want to say 2010. Mm-hmm. There was a very famous letter published in the Wall Street Journal from a number of really smart mm-hmm. bond guys, equity guys, fund managers, warning that hey, all this QE and and ZERP is going to cause hyperinflation, and instead we saw disinflation and and the risk of deflation. I I think one of the uh, big factors has been um, globalization. And uh, I impact I, I, on the labor market, especially. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I have a, a, a chart that I show of the CPI going back to 1800. It's a monthly chart. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, it's changed over the years. It used to be kerosene and grain. Now, it's right. a whole bunch of other things, include services much more now than it did back then. Uh-huh. And uh, what that chart shows when you look at the level of the CPI, just it just screams at you. And that is um, inflation tends to be associated with wars. And deflation tends to occur during peacetimes, and after a long enough peacetime, you sort of have uh, price stability. Um, 
Send I, me that chart. I'll post it when we yeah, do the, sure. uh, when, we, when we I've, write about this. I, I think what that confirms for me is that microeconomics has become more relevant or is more relevant than macroeconomics and thinking Meaning about Meaning the inflation. household's economics is going to be more significant than what uh, governments what, what I, and what, bankers? What I mean is macroeconomists are looking at too big of the, at the big picture. The microeconomists are looking at uh, market structure and uh, – so they're saying, okay, are the markets competitive or are they monopolized? Mm-hmm. In war times, there's very little competition, and you tend and there's, you can't trade with your enemies. It's hard to trade with right. your friends. So you tend to have a lot of inflation. Uh, a lot of the labor force is in Makes the trenches. Sense. Sure, peace breaks out. That's globalization. This is not the first round of globalization we've ever had. We had after this the War of 1812, after the Civil War, after uh, World War One, um, and it's just uh, what happens is. You now can trade with people around the world, and uh, there's more competition is really what happens. You know, you mentioned trading with people around the world. Last week, we had Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard, who two books ago wrote The Better, the better Nature of Our Angels, why, at looking at why globally, despite the headlines, uh, the amount of crime, the amount of violence, the amount of wars are at record lows. Yeah. So, so when you're trading with China and Russia and Japan and Germany and mm. where go around the world, right. Korea, wherever, Vietnam, uh, President Obama was just in Vietnam, you're much less likely to launch a, a bombing attack right. on the place where Correct. you're getting your supply chain to make your, right. your, your goods. So is this possibly a long piece that we're entering in that means that globalization is going to be ongoing, deflation or at least disinflation is not likely to go away, right. and and we have really a very different economy than we had last century? You never want to jinx it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure like- If right, I had that power. Right, right before World War One, I'm, I'm sure- Someone you know, said so, Somebody said a that. A permanently high plateau, yeah, if you remember you know, 1929. and you know, everything <laughs> looks just hunky-dory. Uh, I mean, we're dealing here with humans here. and But but the, these yeah. are big secular they're, they're shifts big secular is what shifts. the point I, 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 I think wanna... another way to put it is there's just so much money now that's at risk with globalization. People are making a lot of money mm-hmm. with free trade. Sure. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, complaints about income inequality, but the world on a on average has become more equal. I mean, we've we've lost some income here, but other countries have-, have Emerging markets income. have, and, and the population yeah. in the most impoverished and, and part of the world why, have come that's up. That's why it's a more peaceful world. People have more of a stake in uh, maintaining peaceful relationships and, and, and in, in, in engaging in commerce. Professor Pinker had said something that I thought was really fascinating, which was, we see a surprising little impact on crime and war from affluence, except when people have zero hope, nothing to live for. Right. The All the, the most impoverished nations that were in lots and lots of civil wars last century, many of them have worked their way out of that state, and the wars tend to go away. They tend to be more economically productive, yeah, so a, and trade is a big cause of it. It makes all the sense in the world. I mean, uh, when people have aspirations and they think they can do better— they're going to do better. Uh, if you cut them off from those and they, they have nothing to lose, then they, they behave like that. So crime, war, civil war, all that stuff makes, makes up. a lot of sense. So you mentioned income inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your views on what that means here in the United States? At least in the developed world, there have been com- 
lots and lots of complaints. Yes. Be it Pickety, be it uh, I could go Robert Frank. There's right. a whole run of folks who have looked at numbers and said yes, the distribution of wealth has changed, but it hasn't changed so much as the middle class versus the upper class. It's changed most dramatically in the upper class versus the upper, 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 the 0.01% mm-hmm. of, of earners. Yeah. What does that mean, and what should we do about it, if anything? Well, I, I think this process of uh, globalization, free trade, uh, has created more income equality on a global basis but you know when and you're- by the way, the data supports you on that. That yeah. there are far less people living completely in poverty than there were fifty years right. ago. Right. The, the problem, though, is if you were making a lot of money as an auto worker or mm-hmm. some manufacturing, and and suddenly you, the job's not even there. Uh, obviously, you're going to feel uh, dispossessed. You're going to feel like you know something something's been taken away from you. So I, mm-hmm. I think we have to acknowledge that. I mean, we can't just like pretend that's that's not the case. Um, but uh, I don't think politically we want to get carried away with this notion that uh, uh, Americans are uh, are not doing well. Um, I, I think we, we we need to really focus on the fact that this country, uh, on average, is doing well. But you know, and acknowledge it. Part of that average, of course, is the rich are getting richer. Um, but look, um, you know, it's uh, it clearly gets into the whole politics of. Of taxation and whether we're taxing enough, mm-hmm. um, I, I happen to believe that uh, uh, jobs and wages are created by profitable companies. For sure. So uh, I, I'm all for uh, uh, what I call entrepreneurial capitalism. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm against crony capitalism, and I think I think a lot of the excesses that uh, the income inequality people are looking at, rightly so are in the crony capitalism uh, arena. Uh-huh. Uh, but capitalism gets blamed for it. And I think it's uh, it's it's when crony capitalists are in cahoots with uh, politicians that we get our income inequality. I mean, one of the highest standards of living in America today is in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I wonder why that might be the case. If you look at it, so let me back up a sec. When you look at who's doing well and who's not doing well in the U.S., You can control for a number of things. If you can control for degree of education, that's very insightful. If you can control for what sector of the economy you're working in, that provides some information. But it's surprising at how many winners and losers there are geographically. Minnesota, doing fantastic. Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Boston, New York. But what really is the standout, more than any period I can remember over the past half century, Washington, D.C., and all the surrounding environments, right. house of fire, absolutely yeah. blown up. Politics is a good business. It. I don't think it always was as lucrative no. of businesses. Now, I don't know if that's the lobbying side and some of the Supreme Court cases that changed like it. Over the years, it's been gamed and gamed and gamed. I mean, it, they, it seems like the yeah. past, since 2000, the past 20, mm-hmm. 15 or so years... It's really exploded. It's really exploded, yeah. So, so that that's interesting. So, in terms of what we should be looking at income inequality, I get the sense that you would like to see the U.S. corporate tax code revamped, changed, uh, simplified, and, I, I and think lowered. The, I think the entire tax code uh, needs to be simplified for the for the good of all of us. I mean, clearly, uh, it benefits t- uh, tax lawyers. Um, but if we clean up the corporate tax code, he said, mm-hmm. talking his own book, 
Um, I got the sense you think that there'd be more hiring and more employment if uh, if that was if there were less impediments. Well, anything anything in my mind that increases profit legitimately mm-hmm. uh, in in a competitive entrepreneurial system is going to create more jobs and it's going to create more wages because there'll be more demand for labor and and, and wages will go up. So. Uh, yeah, I think it also gets into the issue of the double taxation of dividends um, and, and how, how we value stocks. I mean, it's something. And we just raised taxes on dividends a few years ago. Yeah. So that's now, what are we at, 23 something? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see the stock market go back to dividend discount uh, uh, valuations where we, all we really care about is has the company been paying a dividend and are they increasing it? Everything else is accounting fluff. So, so what are we at? About two point eight percent or so on the S. I'm doing this from memory on the S and P 500 dividend yield. It's actually yeah, it's about that. All right, plus or minus a yeah. little bit. What happens to that number if and when the Fed brings <laughs> rates up to one and a half, two percent? Because right now the argument is, hey, you get a two point nine percent dividend yield or two point seven percent dividend yield, and you get all the S upside of of the best of corporate America. Yeah. When you could buy a safe three percent treasury yield, what does that mean for well, for the S and P? I I think uh, you know one of the things that uh, I've learned over the years is I wish I had a lot more money when I was younger and uh-huh. just put it all in dividend yielding stocks. Well, with uh, the benefit of hindsight, yeah. for sure. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like putting your money in a, a company that's increasing its dividend over the years. Uh, you know, you sleep, if you, you sleep well at night, you you just kind of stick with it, and um, so I would say for younger folks, that's not a bad thing to do. And um, you know, eliminating the double taxation of dividends would be a nice thing. So, in a tax deferred account, um, I'm under the impression that going back to I want to say 1926, and again, I'm I'm doing this from memory. Almost half of the Dow returns yes. have been re- reinvested dividends. If is not, that is that about more, right? If not more, if not more, yeah. So, and you would think, what's two and a half, three percent? But over time, that that really compounds. Yeah. All right, let me see what there was one or two other questions I wanted to get through before I start going to my standard questions, although we've really covered uh, a lot of these. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One last, since you you cover both economics and the markets, there's one question that always comes up that, and you're the perfect person to ask this. So it seems very often like the markets are out of sync with the economy. You know, how do you reconcile that? Which drives which, or is it mutual? I think it's uh, mutual. The um, the stock market can't get too out of out of, out of sync uh, with with the economy, uh, unless of course we're in a speculative bubble situation, in which case it can come back to bite us, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we've seen a few times here uh, over the, over the years, where what they're talking about. The market being the stock market or the housing market, uh, when asset values uh, get way out of sync with reality because of speculative excesses, it can come back and uh, create a financial crisis and a, and a, and a recession. So um, again, I, I, most economists, macroeconomists, tend to focus on the business cycle. I prefer to focus on the profit cycle. Mm-hmm. I think it's the profit cycle that drives the the business cycle. The business cycle. It's basically a, a sort of again a demand side construct. It's mm-hmm. uh, how do we stimulate demand so that business does better? And I'm thinking more from a supply side standpoint. You know, how, how do we have companies generate more profits so that they'll want to expand capital and hire people, and then those people go and spend money? Um, 
So there clearly there's it's it's not one it's not one direction. It works both ways. So let's talk a little bit about profits. We we've had corporate profits at or near record highs yes. for the past six years. We've seen profits come down when oil prices plummeted. That was almost uh, or maybe a little over ten percent of the S and P, um, and their profits basically just collapsed. Where are we in the profit cycle, and and what's the most important thing to watch for as that moves forward? Well, on a on a, on a historical cyclical basis, uh, we're late into the expansion phase. I mean, when we had the recovery, which was V-shaped, mm-hmm. uh, and that was basically 2009-2010. Uh, then uh, we recovered back to the previous high, and have been move on to, to new highs at a sl- at a slower pace. Uh, so that's sort of the the expansion. Uh, what really hasn't happened yet is margins haven't compressed. Usually, profit margins compress at this point in the cycle because companies get too slap happy. Business is great. They hire too many people. They, right. they spend too much. Uh, because of 2008, they're being very careful not to do it this time. <laughs> so the margins uh, haven't uh, regressed to the mean, as they say. Uh, they stayed at, at a record high. And uh, that may very well continue to be the case. So profits are going to be driven by the growth of revenues, and revenues will be driven by global economic activity, which looks pretty punk. It looks, uh, you know, maybe we can get 3% growth globally and maybe 2 to 3% inflation. 6%, not terrible. Not terrible. But that's probably what profits are going to grow, and that's probably what the market's going to do. Isn't that more or less the average we've seen, 6% profits, even though the analysts are forecasting 12% for forever? Yeah, analysts uh, tend to be too optimistic and have to lower their numbers. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we're kind of at average. So, so what should an investor be looking at for signs that either profit compression is coming along or that the cycle is you know, at the end of its rope? Um, the problem with the profit margins data is it's available only quarterly with a lag. Right. Uh, we we look at uh, some data that's actually available weekly, but it's based on analyst consensus expectations. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think at, at the end of the day, um, it's still going to be a perception of what do you think the economy is doing? If the economy just continues to chug along like this, muddle along, and that's what the global economy is, is doing, maybe kind of lagging behind but still growing, I think you can pretty much count on earnings growth, matching revenues growth in the stock market, giving you kind of mid-single-digit returns. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, that's not if that's if that's what we're looking at, that's not the worst sort of environment. Not, not at all. Considering we're still, you know, six, seven years and, post-crisis. You know, and if you own dividend-paying stocks, they'll continue to pay you the, the, the dividends. And uh, yeah, this is just not uh, an environment to do anything really tricky or jazzy. So six plus two and a half, eight and a half, nine percent is not, not the bad. worst sort of a not the worst sort of thing. Nope. All right, so let's get to some of my favorite questions. Sure. We talked a bit about your background and what you did before you were on the street. Let's talk about your early mentors. You mentioned uh, Henry Kaufman. Who else was an early mentor to you? Well, again, Henry Kaufman was a mentor from afar. I mean, I sort of aspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked what he was, the the job he had, and you know, kind of followed his career path in some ways. Uh, Greg Smith was an investment strategist uh, that I worked with very closely at uh, at uh, EF Hutton and uh, Prudential. Then I moved over to C.J. Lawrence and uh, Jim Moltz was the investment strategist. That name that, is really familiar. Yeah. So you know, I you know some of these guys are sort of uh, 
legends within within the business of mm-hmm. of investment strategy. So I learned a lot from them and kind of segued into being an investment strategist. Yeah, economists uh, aren't uh, really taught academically to uh, to help people be good investors. You, you have to learn that on, on, on the street. So I think uh, I had some good mentors along those lines. So so what that, that raises a good question. What investors do you think you've learned from over the years in terms of famous or colleagues you worked with? Um, well, um, again, uh, not all these people are... Uh, Household me- names? Me- household me- media stars. Right. Uh, but, so Warren uh, Buffett aside. Yeah, I mean, Warren Buffett uh, and, and, and I haven't crossed paths, but, uh, you know, I've, I've had regular conversations almost weekly with a fellow by the name of Hank Herman, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, uh, runs Waddell Reed. Uh, oh, sure. And, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, I've, I've learned a lot from him. Early on in the, when I was uh, doing particularly well in the bond market forecast, um, uh, Van Hoisington, uh, uh, a very well well regarded name. I think in some especially ways, in employment data and other. I, things I think like in that. some ways he really is the bond king. Uh, you know, I mean, Bill Gross uh, gets that label, uh, and a couple of other people have been labeled bond kings. But uh, Van Hoisington. Van Hoisington has been uh, bullish on bonds since the early '80s, and good, uh, good time, good timing, and managed a portfolio with very very good returns and. Uh, uh, he's the one that I kind of got the uh, uh, phrase "hat size bond yields." Back when bond yields were ten percent, uh, uh-huh. I walked into the office and I said, "You know, Van, I think bond yields could go to seven percent." I said, "Yeah, Ed, and, you know, his Texas drawl, yeah, hat size bond yields." That's very so, funny. So I picked up on that, and uh, it worked really well for me in the '80s. So I have to thank him for uh, helping uh, my career in the early part of uh, of that period. So let's talk about some books. What are some of your favorite, be it nonfiction, market-related fiction? I, I, I like history a lot, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I like uh, biographies. Uh, um, I've been particularly fond of reading uh, biographies of the founding fathers uh, uh-huh. and sort of what their, their philosophical bents were. I'm a big fan of Madison. Uh, really? So, yeah. Who wrote the most recent uh, Madison bio? I I mean, I got three or four books on the shelves, and uh, I'm not good at remembering authors. But um, then um, I, I like reading uh, the so-called, ba- you know, uh, robber barons. Uh, some of them weren't really robber barons. So mm-hmm. uh, so that's uh, like Carnegie, Morgan. Yeah. Who else is in that list? Oh, well, uh, you know. Rothschild. Uh, you know, cer- <laughs> certainly Rockefeller. Uh-huh. You know, I think his, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he, he was uh, sort of... Uh, Attacked for uh, putting a lot of people out of out of out of business, but a lot of them were small little businesses that weren't doing very efficiently. And his uh, number one interest was to lower the price of kerosene so it would be more affordable to a lot more people. So he probably did more to increase standards of living than many other people uh, in in in, uh, in in industry. So I like I like reading the controversies about you know people who kind of believe that these people were robber barons and then. What, what was the real story? Some of them were absolute robber barons. They were crony capitalists. Right. Uh, but some of them were really committed to, you know, providing a better product and service to, to the consumer. Give me, give me one more book to put down for uh, our trilogy here. Well, look, um, I know at, at the risk of, uh, you know, sounding trite, I mean, I, uh, I mean, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, and uh, combined with 
uh, the theory of moral sentiments uh, is certainly uh, the, the, the Bible for me. I don't uh, think anyone is going to call Adam Smith trite. At least not. Well, you know, at least not and, our listeners. And, and, and at least you know, p- p- pretending that uh, you know uh, it's important. I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, I'm not pretending. I, it, I I learned a lot from that book. So, but but you know, I, as I did from Milton Friedman's uh, monetary history. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I have to say, I didn't really learn much from uh, the general theory by John Maynard Keynes. I mean, I studied in a Keynesian dis- discipline, but it never kind of made sense to me, quite honestly. So you're you're more of a, uh, a Friedmanite than a Keynesian? I'm more um, a Madisonian, uh, you know, constitutional uh, economist. I think, uh, you know, in, in an environment where entrepreneurial capitalists, not crony capitalists, uh, are, are uh, set free and uh, don't get in each other's way by hiring lobbyists, um, I, I like I like people who you know wake up in the morning trying to figure out how to make it a better world for consumers. So so let me ask you this question: What should we do about this bull market and lobbyists? About the never-ending parade through the halls of Congress uh, of of special interests and people who don't care about Madison, yeah. who don't care about Adam Smith, but Basically, you're paid to be mercenaries on behalf the of system, a... The system's become horribly corrupt. So how do you uh, fix that? It's it's so corrupt that I don't really know how you fix it. Um, do you do you I mean, overturn I mean, some of the I legislation mean, or some of the Supreme well, Court decisions? Well, I mean, start out with uh, one term. You know, I mean, the, the fact that, uh, you know, I guess there's a congressman that just came up with an anonymous book about what it's really like to be a congressman, and there's apparently nothing new in there other than telling us what we know and it takes you spend all your time raising money right and then you're beholden to the people you 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 raise money with i mean it's unfortunately it's kind of the human condition people uh, this is where i actually agree with disagree with adam smith adam smith said the capitalism is based on selfishness it's actually based on insecurity Uh uh it's insecure people that are that are trying to you know make their customers come back by providing them with something really good Unfortunately, there's other insecure people that just hire lobbyists or, you know, wrest control of uh, the political system and, and, and corrupt it. Uh, so I, I, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see that America still main, has maintained a lot of its entrepreneurial spirit and that entrepreneurs can still do well. Uh, but uh, there's an enormous amount of corruption at the political level. And as we were discussing, that's evident in the standard of living in Washington, D.C., um, look, we, we had Ronald Reagan and we had uh, Margaret Thatcher, and look where we are today. I mean, we aren't any better off. Um, I, I don't really know how you fix the system politically. I mean, you really need uh, prosecutors who go after um, b- bad people who are out to uh, corrupt the system. Um, but that's only if there's a law against what they're doing. If what they're only, doing yeah. is legal, how, how do you stop? What laws do we have to change? And I, we don't have time to solve the problem no. of corrupt lobbyists, but yeah. but at a certain point, someone has to look at this and say, the system has become completely off the rails. I, I think a lot about this problem, but um, I haven't come up with a solution. Um, and and it's, it's it's you know my day job is not to be a preacher. Mm-hmm. I don't do uh, you know good or bad. I don't do good or evil. I do bullish or bearish. And uh, <laughs> what what I'm what I'm amazed by is how well. 
our economy and our financial markets have done despite despite the, the, despite the corruption despite the the, the, the politicians it, it's quite amazing um so let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh the financial services industry speaking of lobbying mm-hmm. what what are some of the major changes that you think are significant since you you joined the industry well um from the pers- perspective of my uh, my business, uh, I, I have uh, several hundred institutional accounts, and uh, I talk to them on a regular basis. And more and more of them are uh, upset uh, about ETFs, especially the mutual fund industry. Really? Yeah. So upset in it's terms cutting into of their, it's cutting cutting into their business, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and then every now and then you get some of these. Uh, wild uh, days where the market's up a lot or down a lot where you kind of wonder whether it's a combination of the algorithms and the high-frequency traders and the uh-huh. ETFs that are all making this uh, a more volatile market, which then turns the the, re- the retail investor off completely. In other words, we may be losing retail investors not just to mutual funds but also uh, to, to, to ETFs. So, to, to passive indexes more than anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's a concern about that for sure. I mean, That's a big change. A, it's a big change. I mean, it's not just a concern. I mean, you can see it in the mutual fund numbers. Uh, m- money is coming out of there. Mm-hmm. And it has been going in, into ETFs. So, uh, you could also see it in the trading volumes. The yes. trading volumes are down significantly. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting and major shift in the past. What, what are the major changes that we should be watching for coming up in the future? Well, I, again, uh, maybe a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and so I have a little knowledge about technology. I'm always interested in technology and how it's impacting our economy and, and disrupting things. I think a lot of economists really don't pay enough attention to technology, and they get really pessimistic, and suddenly some technology comes along the way, like fracking that lowers mm-hmm. the price of oil. and Game you know, changer. It's a game, game changer, and... Uh, you know, uh, it, it's impossible to forecast that, but it doesn't mean you can't follow it when it's starting to make the headlines. And I, I'm intrigued by this blockchain technology, which is a software uh-huh. algorithm uh, behind uh, Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And um, people figured out that, uh, you know, whether you're for or against Bitcoin, the software technology itself uh, is really quite intriguing. And it, very, uh, secure, very secure, very fast transaction identification. Yeah. And the fact that... Uh, pe- Companies like Goldman and J.P. Morgan are spending billions on it. Suggests that literally billions. billions you think there's yeah. billions in investments? No, no. no. In that. I mean, there've been articles spending that. You know, I'm not talking about hundreds of billions, but you know, one, two, three billion. Num- That's a lot of money. A lot of non- on, on one technology. Uh, they really see a, a potential here for it to uh, dramatically lower their back office costs, which then has implications for employment in an area that used to be an, an important source of uh, of jobs. Uh, but it could uh, have an impact on counterfeiting. Uh, mm-hmm. It could, uh, I mean, you know, I've uh, I've become a, uh, a kind of a a, a, a little bit uh, cranky complainer about central banks and their impact on us. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if we had a economic system that didn't have a central bank, where somehow the money was created digitally through um, a, this kind of uh, blockchain technology? I mean, uh, the, the Fed was set up initially just to help with the seasonal issues of uh, corn uh, production. Right. <laughs> it's, and, it's, and the all too regular panics that seem to have stricken right. every every few years. And now the question is whether it's actually contributed to those panics 
by trying to moderate the business cycle. Right. Um, so I'm just kind of intrigued by where fintech, as it's called, uh, uh-huh. is leading. It's not just blockchain, but it's certainly a, an, an important part of it. Uh, and probably is going to continue for uh, the foreseeable future. So, yep. so now we're down to my last two favorite questions. Um, at just in time, uh, let's say a, a recent college grad or a millennial came to you and and said, uh, "Doctor Ed, I'm thinking about a career in finance. What sort of advice would you give them?" I would say uh-huh. that uh, please learn how to write. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, please read a lot. Um, you know, just the two R's, uh, re- re- reading and writing. I don't really need arithmetic. No arithmetic? I don't really need it. I, I think there's too much arithmetic, uh, especially in economics. Uh, really? Yeah, there's too much quantitative uh, analysis. That's and, funny you say yeah. that. I've heard people complain the opposite. <laughs> that that kids rigorous, today or? just don't have enough math skills, and it just falls when to a handful to of quants. When it comes to engineering, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm talking. You asked me about finance, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, finance has become become almost too much quantitative and too much algorithm. And I, I don't know that there's other than designing an algorithm that then kind of does its own thing. I don't know what, how you make a career out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that uh, you're not going to find too much uh, competition uh, in any in any business in any industry um, if if you're a really good writer. Uh, with with a with a, with a fairly broad sweep of knowledge, there's just not that many people that are, uh, you know, Renaissance men and women who are interested in a lot of different subjects and can write intelligently about it. So I, w- I would say, learn how to write, please, because I, you know, I I I keep trying to uh, expand my operation, and uh, it's finding people who can write is 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 very very difficult. Huh, that's quite fascinating. Um, and I and I can't say I disagree with you, although I'm I'm aware of a number of people who are outstanding writers. But maybe that proves your point. If if you're if you count in your head half a dozen or so people whose writing skills you really uh, admire, I guess it means it's, well, it's not a, it's a really, lot that it, many people. Yeah, I mean it's really communicating. You mm-hmm. know, I mean uh, it's the ability to have conversations, intelligent conversations with all kinds of different people. Uh, in a business setting and uh, and otherwise, and uh, I think we're kind of losing that. Maybe it's you know the the, the tweets, the social networking. Uh, we're just 140 we're... characters makes it hard to really develop yeah. an idea. That's right. So final question, and and my favorite one of all: What is it that you know about economics and investing that you wish you knew 25 years ago? Well, I think we touched on it. Uh, I, I I wish I had more money. Uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I wish I'd put it all in dividend-yielding stocks and, you know, not not fooled around with all the, you know, uh, hot tips. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would say that uh, over the years I've learned that hot tips are, uh, you know, sure way to lose money, so uh, d- definitely stay away from that, that stuff. I'd say over the years I've learned that, uh, you know, uh, tax of, uh, sh- shelters and other means that mm-hmm. uh, investments that are focused just on lowering taxes uh, uh, tend not to, to, to work out either. You know, uh, if you lower your profits, you lower your taxes. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, Ed, thank you so much for doing sure. this. I, I appreciate how generous uh, you've been with your time. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see the other 95 or so such questions. Uh 
such conversations we've had with various people over the past two years. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker, for helping to put together these conversations. Uh, Mike Batnick is head of research who helps us uh, do the deep dive into finding interesting things to talk about. And Charlie Vollmer, who is down in D.C. doing some lobbying of his own, which is why he's not in the control booth where he belongs. Uh, You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at coneresnick.com slash breakthrough.